Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast here on Word and Testimony. Just a quick note, I've got a mention of Jesus's birth in the in the episode you're about to listen to. And I mentioned the manger in Bethany. And I realize Bethany is the wrong city. Jesus is definitely born in Bethlehem. Um, so my apologies for that slip. I wanted to own that here. So hopefully uh, that doesn't uh, get in the way, but enjoy the rest of the episode and we'll talk again soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, it is a roadway edition. It's 9.15 and I'm headed to the rink for a 10.15 hockey game and, uh, thinking about, uh, the, the series that we're in as we uh, continue to walk through this series about the Bible as a cohesive whole on uh, the Word and Testimony podcast. And so I'm glad you're with us and um, welcome along for, for, this, for this edition. Um, we are looking at how the New Testament is working off of things that exist in the First Testament. And um, I had an idea to run into the Philippians letter and look at the hymn in Philippians chapter 2. And as I thought about it, um, and as I ran into some some of the stuff that I was reading this week out of the book of Isaiah, uh, I had a bit of a different idea. So we're going to jump into that idea today, and we'll come to the Philippians letter uh, maybe next time. But the idea today... Uh, is again kind of concept. It revolves around God's sovereignty. Um, the sovereignty of God is tricky uh, because I think we have a lot of misconceptions about what it means for God to be sovereign. And so I, I want to process out some of those ideas a little bit. And then I would like to work through um, the the passage spaces or the narrative spaces that I think bear these out. Um, as, as we jump into this, I think a lot of us default to a concept of God's sovereignty that's uh, an oversimplification of the idea, but it, it sort of skews the way that we look at it. So we, we boil down God's sovereignty in, into the fact that God can do whatever it is that God wishes to do. Which is not wrong. But that doesn't mean it it doesn't have boundaries. So when we say that God can do whatever it is that God wishes to do, what we aren't saying is nonsensical things, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Like, God can make a rock so heavy even he can't lift it. C.S. Lewis says that's absolute nonsense and God isn't nonsense. He's beyond our total comprehension, but he's not nonsensical. God makes sense. So when we say God is sovereign and we say that God can do as he wishes, what we mean is that there is nothing that inhibits God from acting according to his will, his character, and his nature. Uh, His nature being uh, eternal in both directions, all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., his character being that moral character of uprightness 
justice, uh, love and grace, and all of those things um, in concert with one another, working, working together, right? So he never sacrifices his grace or his love in favor of his justice and vice versa. He doesn't forego his justice in favor of his grace or his love. They, they're always working together and in concert. Uh, they're, they're not isolated from each other. So God's nature, um, what he is in his most essential being, his character, that moral character, moral fiber that we're accustomed to interacting with as God interacts with the characters of the Bible. Um, and his will, what God intends to accomplish on the earth. Now, when we talk about God's will, uh, there's a whole set of spaces here. Um, there's a whole group of Christian traditions that will say God has a, uh, a kind of perfect will that is, uh, this is what God wishes and intends and, and has in mind as what is, what is best for humanity because he knows what is best. And we don't always act in accordance with that perfect will. Sometimes we, we miss it, we make mistakes, sometimes we intentionally ignore it, etc. And so God has a perfect will that is, that is best. But God also has a permissive will, which is a what God will allow. And I'm, I'm okay, I think, with those distinctions. Um, I, what I want to be careful of is sort of dichotomizing that and making it two separate things. Uh, and, and here's the reason why. And, and this is the crux that's going to get us into Romans 8 and 9 and eventually the Exodus story. What God allows and what God intends to work out for his purposes of salvation are not exclusive of each other. In other words, God will not allow something that would inhibit the outworkings of his plans of salvation. That doesn't mean that God won't allow circumstances in our life that are challenging, that are difficult to deal with and reconcile with the truth of Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. So when we talk about this, and we talk about God's plans of salvation, I'm talking about the, the elements of the biblical narrative and of human history that leads us to Jesus Christ and leads Jesus Christ from the manger in Bethany to the cross on Golgotha and his resurrection in the garden. Okay? So that plan has to happen. But God doing as he wishes to bring that plan about doesn't mean that he interferes with human choices in a way that makes humans make choices against what would be that human's will. In other words, God doesn't compromise the integrity of the human will to make willful choices. Okay? So, when we say that God is sovereign, we say that everything that happens is under God's control, within his parameters of authority. And nothing happens 
without his at least allowing it to transpire. And in all of that, what God intends and what God allows aren't necessarily contradictory. Okay? Now, there's there are some hard realities to deal with in God's sovereignty. Like God allows things to happen in human history that we have a hard time getting our heads around. But remember, God being sovereign does not mean that he will override human choice or somehow violate the integrity of human free will because he made us as beings like himself with a will that can exercise itself to make decisions. Okay? Uh, there's, a, there's an Enlightenment philosopher who says, in that regard, humanity is autonomous, self-law-giving from autonomous, right? Self-law. So, um, here, here's, where, here's where I want to go to the biblical text. Romans 8 and 9 and then following into 10 and 11, get us into a concept of God's sovereignty and God's election. And so there are a couple of things that I want to lay out here. Number one, I believe that God knows everything from the beginning of creation to, to the time when uh, time itself stops and eternity begins. From before his beginning of creation. In other words, before God start, started making anything, God knew everything that would transpire and everyone who would be involved. This is a, a fundamental concept in Christian theology about God's foreknowledge. God knowing all things, omniscience, beforehand. Okay? So, one, I think God knows all things. Two, I don't think God violates the integrity of human free will. Three, there are passages in the Bible that can be difficult to get our heads around holding those two ideas together. Okay? Romans 8 and Romans 9 introduce us to this idea. In Romans 8, 28... Through 30. We, we get into this concept where those God foreknew, the, the ones he knew beforehand who would be saved, he predestined, he destined them beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son. That's Romans 8. In Romans 9, Paul uses the, the, the historical and the narrative happenings of what transpired with Pharaoh to talk about God exercising his sovereignty and his authority in the earth. And he says, basically, so what if God has endured people in his plans and in the run of executing those plans who are, and Paul uses this phrase, quote, objects of wrath. And this is the tough bit. Because this is where individuals have kind of run with this. And I think the oversimplification has become a problem. So what we have is... God will accomplish God's purposes on the earth, like he did with Joseph in Egypt, like he does with Pharaoh and the Exodus deliverance. God will accomplish his, his purposes. 
Paul introduces us to this idea that God will accomplish his purpose. And and there will be moments in accomplishing that purpose where God has to sort of deal with and work with human individuals who aren't necessarily on board with that purpose. Like Pharaoh. And so he uses Pharaoh. Um, The deal with Pharaoh is this line in Exodus 3 and 4 when God is talking to Moses about, I know that Pharaoh's not going to let you go unless I compel him with a mighty hand. In other words, I'm going to have to get involved and I'm going to have to act to convince Pharaoh to let you go because otherwise he's not going to let the Israelites walk out of Egypt. And I'm going to have to do some stuff in order to make that convincing happen. And and then the stuff that he has to do to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go is the ten plagues, which culminates in the death of the firstborn. For the first five plagues, the text is clear that Pharaoh hardens his heart or that Pharaoh's heart was hard. In other words, Pharaoh is being stubborn or there's a resistance in Pharaoh to what God is telling him to do, let the Israelites go. After that, plague 6 through 10, there there's three or four mentions, I think, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And this is where it gets tricky. Because I think for a lot of us, when we hear the language of God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we think of something like God callousing over Pharaoh's sensitivity, Pharaoh's heart, to use the biblical language, right? But Pharaoh's sensitivity to what God is saying, hardening over Pharaoh's sensitivity and predisposing Pharaoh to a set of decisions that is basically not to let the Israelites go. That's a bit tricky. Because if God is sort of messing with Pharaoh's ability to make a decision, then we're in a space where God is violating Pharaoh's willful choices. And God is coercing or causing Pharaoh to choose something. And that's squishy in terms of God's sovereignty. Okay? So, here's here's how I explained it to a friend of mine. And I I think this is going to get us to what Isaiah is saying in chapter 14 and what Paul is getting at in, in, in Romans. But, God knows that Pharaoh is going to be resistant to God's plan to let the Israelites go out of Egypt. And so he tells Moses that Pharaoh is going to be resistant and he will have to be compelled. And this is where God's foreknowledge comes in. So knowing ahead of time the way that Pharaoh is going to respond, God chooses a series of ten events which is a kind of grace. Because if God knows Pharaoh's resistance off the hop, he could 
in his justice, just do something that wipes Pharaoh off the board and lets the Israelites leave, but he doesn't. Instead, he does 10 plagues where he has Moses go before Pharaoh for all but three of those, maybe four, where he tells Pharaoh what is going to happen. And he tells Pharaoh, this is going to happen so that you know Yahweh is God. He's trying to teach Pharaoh something in that moment. Here's the balance in God's character of his justice and his grace. He's going to execute his justice on Pharaoh. But it's come with his grace of ten chances for Pharaoh. And for the first five, Pharaoh demonstrates his own resistance. So God says, okay, we're going to continue to act in front of Pharaoh and let Pharaoh respond. And this is what I think the, the scripture means when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God, knowing how Pharaoh would respond, still acted in that way. One, to execute his justice and to accomplish his purpose in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. But to do both of those in a way that didn't violate God's grace. Because he could have, in one fell swoop, wiped out Pharaoh and the Egyptians and let the Israelites go scot-free. But he didn't. It's ten plagues. And those plagues are demonstrations and executions of God's justice while also being a movement of God's grace, of, of his patience, of fancy King James word, his long-suffering with Pharaoh, to bring about his purpose of setting the Israelites free without sacrificing his grace or his justice. And there isn't anything that inhibits God's action. And there isn't anything that prompts God's action except for God's nature, character, and will to do what is in his purpose, to bring about the deliverance of his people, and to do so in a way that is in keeping with who he is, and the character of his person. Now, all of that with Pharaoh, the fact that God knows Pharaoh's choices, even before Pharaoh does, and chooses to intervene in Egypt, despite knowing Pharaoh's choices, or perhaps because he knows Pharaoh's choices, is a kind of provoking. This is where things get difficult for us. 
God knows what Pharaoh is going to do, but God will, but he still chooses to act in step with his justice and his grace, knowing Pharaoh is not going to play nicely. And so he still chooses to pursue his justice and his grace, knowing Pharaoh's responses and knowing that continuing to act in this way with Pharaoh and the Egyptians is only going to calcify Pharaoh's resistance. A pastor, a friend of mine, says that the, the heat that melts the wax also hardens clay. And so what God does is apply the heat. And the Israelites soften. They recognize Yahweh and his deliverance in the plagues narratives. And they begin to listen to Moses and to Yahweh through Moses. Pharaoh, on the other hand, gets increasingly resistant and defiant. But the activity of God is the same. It's the exercise of the plagues. So when we get over into the New Testament, and Paul is talking about this, and we recognize what's going on when Isaiah 14 says that God will accomplish his plans in the earth. We're looking at similar kind of territory. God is not out to make people make certain choices. And here we need James to speak up, because James is very, very clear. God does not make people make sinful choices. God doesn't sin, and so he doesn't tempt or cause anyone else to sin. It's outside of his character. However, God does know how everyone will respond to what God does and has done and will do. But he will still act in ways that have a balance of his justice and his grace, even when he knows this person will respond favorably and this person will be resistant. Like he knows the Israelites will soften and listen and follow and Pharaoh will become hard-hearted. It's the same activity, the ten plagues. But the Israelites, perhaps fitfully and impartially, soften and listen and become yielded to Yahweh. Pharaoh does not. He gets to the point with Moses where he says, the next time I see you, you're going to die. So, when we talk about God's sovereignty, and Paul using these phrases, objects of mercy, objects of wrath, I don't think what Paul is saying is that God has set back and designed certain human beings to make certain choices, or that somehow he reaches into the hearts of human beings and makes their choices for them. He interacts with us and he intervenes in the world around us. 
but he doesn't make our choices for us. He applies heat. And yes, he knows which individuals will be softened wax and which individuals will be hardened clay, but that's part of the tension here. Because God's committed to partnering with humanity that's made in his image and his likeness. And part of that image and likeness is a freely exercised will. A will that makes choices. Not a a will that's somehow robotically programmed. So, when we talk about God's sovereignty, and when Paul is picking up on that sovereignty in Romans, and and he's got the Exodus in mind, and he's got Isaiah 14 in mind, about God accomplishing his purposes. I don't think where Paul is going with that is into a space that says God makes humans' choices for them. I think the space that Paul is pulling from is the space that says God acts and human beings make choices. Sometimes those choices are in step with his will. Sometimes those choices are not in step with his will. But God's actions to accomplish his purposes aren't going to be determined by our choices. They're going to be determined by the exercise of his will. Because he is sovereign. And that means that there isn't anything that compels God to act in any particular way except for God's person, his nature, God's character, and God's will. I hope this is uh, insightful. Until next time on the podcast.